Well, this evening we're kicking off our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. Now, with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Esther, well, I want to take a moment to point out that the events that we find here in this book, they actually occurred during the first half of King Artaxerxes' reign, uh, which was there in the, in the beginning of the 5th century B.C., and in order to, to put this, uh, this book onto a biblical timeline, you should know that the events found here in Esther, they actually took place uh, after the book of Ezra was completed and, and before the beginning of the events found in Nehemiah. So between, uh, between Ezra and Nehemiah, that's when the events in this book occurred. Now, when it comes to the question of authorship, you know, there is some level of disagreement and debate. Some attribute this book to Ezra the priest Others believe that Nehemiah wrote this book. Others yet still insist that this book was probably written by Esther's cousin Mordecai. And one reason for believing this is due to the fact that there are several verses in the book that actually mention the records and the writings of Mordecai. Well, regardless of who wrote this book, what we can say for certain is that the Lord used Esther to take a stand against the evil schemes of the political leaders there in Persia. And in light of her example, it's my hope that we might spend some time you know, studying this book. And, and as we do, that, that, that we would uh, begin to see that you know, there are times when the Lord will uh, call his people to take a stand for righteousness while we're here in this wicked world. And, and there are times when the Lord will call us to oppose the evil schemes of Satan, and it's in those times when we need to walk by faith and take those stands in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with this as the goal, I want to turn our attention now to the beginning of this book. If you would look with me here at Esther chapter 1, I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here we learn that it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Uh, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces uh, being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Uh, now, here in the beginning of this book, we're introduced to this king named Ahasuerus, uh, whom many have mistaken for the Ahasuerus, which was a dinosaur that always looked surprised. Uh, but uh, not, the same, not, the, not the same thing here. You see what I did there? Ahasuerus, get it? Do you get it? Okay, all right. Seriously, though, Ahasuerus, uh, he, he was also known as Artaxerxes. And this was a Persian king who was reigning over the region which stretched from India to Ethiopia, or in other words, King Ahasuerus, he ruled over a region which encompassed Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel, as well as parts of our modern-day Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. That's a, that's a whole lot of land there. And it's for this reason that uh, he divided up uh, all of this area, uh, all of this region into 127 provinces who uh, were then over, uh, you know, ruled over by different satraps. 
But as we consider the vastness of this empire, you know, it's important for us to remember that the Persian kingdom was initially established by King Cyrus when, you know, Cyrus overthrew Babylon. And it was during his reign when Cyrus appointed the region of Babylon to his kinsman, Darius. So Darius was the satrap that was, who was over Babylon. And after the death of King Cyrus, well, Darius the Great then became the, the king of the entire Persian Empire. And after the death of, of Darius the Great, that's when his son, Ahasuerus, inherited the vast Persian Empire as he then ascended to the throne. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find King Ahasuerus, he's taking the time to show off the entire empire that he had inherited. And if you would notice again there in Esther chapter one, verse three, here again, we learn that it was in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces uh, being before him. So, so in other words, King Azurus hosts this huge party, uh, which was attended by all of the most powerful people in all the land. The, the rich and the famous were all there to just be amazed uh, at, at the incredible kingdom of this man. And it's there in verse four where we learn that he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days. And and get this, 180 days in all. He didn't throw a weekend long party. He threw a party for 180 days, which is basically six months. He spent six months just bragging about the position and the power and the prosperity that he had inherited from his father. Well, rich people problems, right? As we consider this ostentatious display of decadence, you know, I have no doubt that King Ahasuerus was a man who was just wanting to show off his worldly wealth. And at the same time, I also believe that this was a man who was attempting to present himself as the most powerful person in the entire world. Remember, he, he didn't gain this kingdom uh, through battles or war. He wasn't seen as some sort of military uh, hero or some mighty man. No, he simply inherited it. You know, it was dad's money. Uh, and so he has to put on this display of power to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm the most powerful person in the world now. I believe that he was determined to establish his dominance over all the powers of Persia, uh, including the nobles and the princes of the provinces. And yet, unfortunately for him, uh, things really didn't go as planned. Now, what this is the focus, I want to consider how King Ahasuerus ended up being humiliated by his wife, the queen. And so let's turn our attention back to the first chapter of this book. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse five, here we read, and when these days were completed, that's speaking of the 180 days of partying. So when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from Uh, From great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, uh, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay, so, so after six months of bragging, 
you know, this king then decides to host this seven-day feast, which included everyone who was there in Shushan. And as we consider, you know, the uh, the description of the decadence, you know, you you know that there was a whole lot of money that went into this party. And and, and while all of the men were having a good time there in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Well, we also learned that the women of Shushan were in the royal palace where they were enjoying another feast, which was being hosted here by Queen, uh, Queen Vashti. Now, you might be interested to know here that Queen Vashti was believed to be the orphan daughter of the Babylonian king, Belshazzar. And according to the, uh, an account that's found in the Haggadah, uh, Belshazzar, Belshazzar was actually killed during a, a feast uh, when some huge candelabrum fell and cracked his cranium open. And as a result, King Darius then took pity on Belshazzar's orphaned daughter, Vashti, and he eventually arranged her marriage to his own son, Ahasuerus. Now, uh, if this is the case, then Queen Vashti was actually the daughter of the Babylonian king, Belshazzar. And at the same time, this would have also have made her the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar II. Well, with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that Vashti refused to be treated like a trophy wife of some Persian king. And to prove my point, uh, well, let's continue to consider the events that unfolded during this seven-day feast, uh, which was hosted by King Ahasuerus. If you would, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 1. Uh, we'll begin reading there at verse 10. Here we learn that it was on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded uh, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ab- Abagtha, uh, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold." But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Here in these verses, we find King Azuras. He was merry with wine, which was just a, a very polite way of saying he was drunk. This guy was drunk, and and in this state of intoxication, he decided that, well, this would be the right time at the end of the feast to to brag about his beautiful wife, and and so he decided that he was going to parade her around, you know, with the crown on, like she was some sort of trophy, and while he imagined that this would be just like the final final proof of his power, that, that he had Belshazzar's daughter for his wife, well, rather than accomplishing this, this dream idea, he was immediately humiliated when Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. According to one Midrashic tradition, Queen Vashti actually sent a message to her husband, which included the following statement, you were father's steward. My father Belshazzar would drink wine in the measure of 1,000 men and would not be inebriated while you act a fool from the wine of a single man. That's a pretty sick burn. But anyway, so this, this tradition, if, if this tradition is true, then Vashti not only questioned his royal position by saying, hey, you were, just, you were the steward of my father when he was the king, and, and now you think you're, you're all hot. Uh, but, but then she goes on to question his manhood by mocking his inability to hold his alcohol. As a result, well, it's no wonder that the king was furious and his anger burned within him. He was enraged. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, on top of that, he was drunk. And as we consider this marital conflict that was occurring here, I just want to take a moment to point out that alcohol is actually one of the leading reasons that couples file for di- divorce in the United States. 
there's a huge number of divorces. It's one of the leading reasons that couples file for divorce. And according to one report, uh, the chances of divorce nearly triple when alcohol abuse is present in the home. In the homes where, where alcohol is being abused, the chance of divorce nearly triples. And one reason why is because intoxicated people tend to say things that shouldn't be said. And they tend to do things that they wouldn't have done had they been sober. I want to consider how King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 20. It's verse 1 where he declares, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In other words, those who are drunk with alcoholic wine are making a mockery of themselves. And the reason why I qualify and say alcoholic wine is because the word wine uh, speaks of, of, you know, any drink that comes from the the fruit of the grape. So, you know, grape juice, you can look at the Bible and uh, there's many verses about wine and all it's talking about is grape juice. So, you know, the word wine, uh, it, it encompasses a lot of different drinks that come from grapes. Uh, but, but in this case, we're talking about alcoholic wine. In this context, he's talking about alcoholic wine is a mocker. He doesn't say drunkenness is a mocker. He says that the wine itself is the mocker. And, and strong drink or liquor is the brawler. And those who are drunk with alcoholic wine, they make a mockery of themselves. If you've ever seen a person who is just completely intoxicated, I mean, they're just making a mockery of themselves. Those who who are intoxicated with liquor are foolishly asking for a fight. That being the case, it's no wonder that alcohol has destroyed as many marriages as it has. Now, I realize that there's no biblical prohibition against having a glass of wine with dinner or having, you know, a, a beer with the boys. You know, and, and so, you know, immediately when you start talking about alcohol, there's those in the church who are just quick to say, well, we, there's, the Bible doesn't ever say. Calm down. Calm down. No, you know, I'm not trying to upset you. But listen, the Bible is filled with scriptures that encourage us to be sober. You can't deny that. For example, it's in Titus chapter 2 where Paul instructs Pastor Titus to realize that older men should be sober. And and in the same chapter, he also declares, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Paul encouraged sobriety. And and so did Peter. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1 where the apostle Peter encourages every Christian to gird up the loins of their mind and be sober. In the fourth chapter of His first epistle, Peter also declares this. He says, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. In other words, uh, your lost friends should think that you're weird because you don't go to the drinking parties anymore. Because you're not off, you know, getting drunk like everybody else is. It's in 1 Peter 5 where the apostle instructs every believer... In this way, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Christian, I'm here to tell you that 
those who continue drinking and, and, and crossing over that border from sobriety to intoxication, you're easy pickings for the devil. Why would we put ourselves in that kind of position? I like the way that Paul explained it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he declares, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, listen, the nighttime should be the time that we're sleeping. Not out drinking. As, as far as the Christian life goes, nighttime is for sleeping. But in the world, nighttime is for drinking. Nighttime is for getting drunk. And, and Paul is speaking to the Christians in Thessalonica saying, rather than living like the drunkards who are out at night getting drunk, Let's be home asleep at night and be sober during the day so that we can walk properly as we walk with the Lord you know, in faith according to, to his perfect love. Now, and now listen, I get it. There might be some here saying, well, I've got the liberty. I've got the liberty to drink. Listen, I had the liberty to drink before I became a Christian. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ has given me the liberty to now not drink. I used to have to drink. I needed to get, you know, intoxicated and high, you know, in order to just, you know, cope with life. That was, that was my life before Jesus. Now in Jesus, I'm liberated from needing those things. You might still say, well, I've got liberty to, you know, have wine with the winos or, or, or a few beers with the boys, you know, that sort of thing. All right. I invite you to consider the encouragement that Paul presented in Galatians chapter 5. It's verse 13 where he declares this. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, listen, our liberty in the Lord should lead us to set aside our own agenda so that we can begin to serve one another here within our fellowship of faith. So if, if, if your whole argument is, well, I've got liberty to... Okay, but how are we supposed to use our liberty in the Lord? By serving one another. Rather than fighting for the right to party like the Beastie Boys, we have to be protecting our relationships by becoming sober-minded saints who are serving our Savior. With this as the goal, let's turn our attention back to the alcohol-fueled marital conflict that we find here in Esther chapter 1. If you will, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 13. Here we learn that the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merish, uh, Marcina, and Memukin the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. Now, as we consider this situation and as we consider this, this question, uh, it's important to understand that the rulers of the Persian Empire uh, would actually claim the title king of kings. 
That, that's how they viewed themselves. The, the kings of Persia saw themselves as being the king of kings. And, and we recognize that that's just false. You know, the, our God is the king of kings. Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. But that's how they saw themselves, the ultimate, ultimate sovereignty and, su- and supremacy. And not only that, but they, then they also demanded total obedience from anyone under their kingdom. And, and this included their wives. And with that being the case, you know, the, uh, the, the people of Persia dared not reject a royal summons. When the king said, come, you come. It's also important for us to remember that the whole reason for why King Azurus was hosting this seven-day feast was because he wanted to demonstrate his power and his authority over the entire Persian Empire. He wanted to prove to everyone that he was the king of kings. And so we shouldn't be surprised to learn that this intoxicated king was quick to appeal to Persian law uh, the very minute that his wife decided that she wasn't going to show up. And he quickly appealed to Persian law as they began to contemplate the queen's punishment. And not only that, uh, but he also sought the opinions of these high-ranking officials who then could help him make a decision based on the laws and the judicial opinions of Persian justice. And, you know, when you're drunk with your buddies, that's the best time to start making these sorts of decisions, right? So, yeah, makes perfect sense. He consulted with the seven drunk friends who were quick to call for the punishment of the queen. Uh, of the queen and, and as you might figure, uh, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. In order to understand the reason for their ruling, I want to consider the expert opinions of these legal scholars. Uh, if you would look with me here at Esther chapter 1, we'll begin at verse 16. Here we learn that a man named Memuken answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before King Azurus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands both great and and small. Now, as we consider this council, we can see how this Persian leader named Memukin, he was clearly nothing more than a misogynist who was primarily concerned about protecting the patriarchy there in Persia. And according to his concerns, you know, if the king of Persia allowed the queen to disobey him, well, then the rest of the ladies would begin to believe that they could disobey their husbands. And the next thing you know, you know, everyone's a Hillary Clinton and it just, it would just be horrible. Wouldn't be long before their wives started to, you know, think for themselves and stuff like that. As we consider the misogyny of Memukin here, it's important for us to understand that this sort of misogyny, it wasn't uncommon there in the ancient world. And just to be clear, misogyny is the term we use uh, of men who think that women are inferior beings simply because of their gender. And it's sad to say that most men in the ancient world truly believed that men were superior to women in every way. 
Now, with this in mind, I want to consider the way that the leaders of Persia, they responded to Memucan's suggestion here. And if you would look with me there at verse 21, here we learn that the the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find King Ahasuerus, he's issuing this royal decree, which actually, uh, you know, was making misogyny the law of the land. At this point in time, he, he was officially decreeing every husband to be the master of his own house. It's there in the middle of verse 22, where the king of Persia officially identifies the man of the house as the master. Well, I guess that, that would make the wife the slave then. That word master was used of the one who had authority to rule. And so according to this royal decree, the man of the house had authority over his wife. He was the master, she was the servant. And it's sad to say that this was the same misogynist mentality which was held by most men in the land of Israel. What's even worse is that there are many men here in the 21st century who still hold this belief that the man is the king of his castle. The man's the king of his castle. And listen, there are men in the church who believe that their misogyny is actually supported by the scriptures. And so they think they're the king of the castle and then they'll go and appeal to certain Bible verses that they take out of context and try to make it fit. Please trust me when I tell you that the Lord Jesus is not impressed with men who try to rule over their wives as if they're the master of the house and their wife is just the servant. To prove my point, I want to take a moment to remind you about the way that Jesus described marriage in Matthew chapter 19. It's here in Matthew 19 where where Christ Jesus quotes a passage from Genesis chapter 2. And this is what he says. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, according to God's design for marriage, and again, he's quoting this from Genesis chapter 2, which is to say that this was God's original design for marriage. This was, the, this was the instruction that he gave after creating Adam and then Eve. According to God's original design for marriage, marriage uh, is supposed to occur between one biological woman and one biological man, and together these two make a covenant with the Lord as the individuals then become one flesh. And while it's true that the husband and the wife have different roles in the relationship, uh, sorry world, but no, men cannot get pregnant. Just, it's not going to happen. The wife and the husband have different roles in the relationship, and yet the man and the woman are equals within the marriage. Two individuals become one flesh. I like the way that Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's there where he helps us to better understand the equality and yet differences of men and women. He says this, 
man is neither independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Yeah. You got to have men and women. And I get it, you know, there's feminists today, third wave feminists who are just kind of like, well, we don't need men, you know, we can just, artificial insemination. And Well, yeah, and they just created, you know, robot wombs now that you can grow a baby inside of too. So I guess we don't need either anymore. Well, what does, that, uh, what does any of that matter? What does the Bible say about it? That's the question. Man is not independent from woman and a woman is not independent from man. Misogynists are wrong because men aren't any better than women. And third wave feminists are wrong because, you know, they think that, you know, women are better than men. And they're wrong. We're all sinners who desperately need to be sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. That being the case, we would all do well to realize that God designed both men and women to be equals and yet different by design. In the context of the marital relationship, men have been given the role of provider and protector, while women have been given the role of household manager and helper and nurturer and these sorts of things. And, and you can say all day long that, that you know the modern world has a different plan. Oh, we'll go for it. Have fun. Let's see how it works out. How's it going so far? Wives have been called to the role of helper through yielded cooperation, while the husband has been called to lay down their life in order to provide for their wife with, uh, so that their wife can have an abundant life. And this is the design of God. And you can think that you know better. Good luck. And while it's true that the husband has been called the head of the family, it's not to say that he's the master of the wife. That's not what it means. This concept head of household is a form of headship that's based in self-sacrifice and not on the authority of some sort of misogynist master. I think that Paul put it best in Ephesians chapter 5. It's verse 28 where he, he says this. He says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Husbands, please hear me when I tell you that we haven't been called to become the masters of our homes. Instead, the husband has been called to become the servant of their spouse. We've been called to sacrificially set aside our agenda so that we can nourish and cherish our better half. In order to grasp the concept of this sort of sacrificial leadership, I want to consider the way that the Lord put it in Matthew chapter 20. It's there in Matthew 20 where Jesus says this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's exactly what King Ahasuerus was doing. He was lording it over his wife Vashti. And Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Christian, listen, the best example of sacrificial leadership can be seen there on the cross of Christ where Jesus laid down his life for the salvation of his bride, the church. Jesus died to self for the abundant life of his bride. And in light of his example, you know, we have, we have a much better understanding of what Paul meant in Ephesians 5, verse 25, where he declares, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How should the husband be the head of the home? By following in the footsteps of Jesus, laying down our lives so that we can become the servants of our spouse. Rather than attempting to exercise authority uh, like a man who thinks that he's the master of his home and his wife has never had a cogent thought in her life. No, the, the, the Christian husband has been called to serve their spouse so that we can love them with sacrificial love. At the same time, wives, the Lord is calling you to yield in cooperation just like the church who ought to obey Christ Jesus. And while it's not the husband's job, men, listen, it's not the husband's job to force this cooperation. Every Christian wife would do well to recognize that God's design for marriage always works better than any marital reinvention that humans can come up with. Proof of my point? Just look at divorce stats today. How's it working? Not very well. We would do well to start realizing that we don't know better than God. And we're not going to be able to create some better idea of marriage than what God has already given us. Therefore, we would just do well to submit ourselves to the way God designed it to be. As we begin to wrap, the, wrap up the study, I just, I just encourage you to remember that you know, Christians will always do well to simply submit ourselves to the instructions of God's word. And, and that includes sobriety. Christians have been called to be sober-minded saints who are using our liberty not to go out and get drunk, but rather to serve one another. Rather than living the rest of our lives under the influence of the wrong spirits, let's become those believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit as we serve the Lord. For those of us who are married, uh, we ought to avoid the path of misogyny and feminism. And instead, let's submit our lives to the Lord as we accept the role that he's given us. Let's accept that role in all humility, believing that he knows better than us. And, and finally, listen, if, if you're on you know, the, the career path of King Ahasuerus, and you're trying to build up your own kingdom here so that eventually you can, you know, be, finally become that rich and famous person who's able to say, look what I've done. Look at, look at all my accomplishments. Someone praise my name. Let's have a party about me and what I've done. It, if that's the mentality here, time to repent. We haven't been called to build up our own kingdom so that we might have something to brag about. No one said we've been called to build up the kingdom of God. We've been called to glorify the name of the Lord. There's one king of kings. And it ain't us.
We've been called to build up the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, and with this as the goal, let's set aside our own desire for personal greatness. Let's set aside that desire for the spotlight. Let's set aside that agenda for, you know, you know becoming some self, you know, self, you know, important person. And instead, let's simply become the humble servants of our Savior Jesus. And, and as we do, the Lord will be glorified in our lives. Let's pray.